Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, please be seated. Glad you're here. You should have Lesson 7 in front of you, the early letters. And uh, if not, they're out there on the back table. And if you ever miss a week, or again, I'll let you know, all you have to do is go on our website, uh, grab my email address. If you miss some notes, I'll be happy to send you what I have. Does anybody remember what the uh, stipulation, though, is that if I send you my notes, what do you have to do with them? Use them how? Teach somebody else. Remember? The reason I'm giving them to you is so that you can take what you've learned and transfer it over, especially in your home. Uh, Braden, our 10-year-old, uh, heard me recently talk about getting ready to do this, and he's like, teach me that stuff. All right, All right let's go. So uh, uh, we are going to start. He's got an uh, AR reading thing he's got to accomplish first. Uh, put his Legos down, get his homework done, and then off we go. So uh, I'm going to put into practice what I ask you to. And so if you get these notes from me, and I encourage you to, or take what you have, Translate them into somebody, uh, somebody at work, a neighbor, family member. Simply say, let's, let's talk about what's in the Bible. So when we open it, we're intelligent, we understand the purpose of it, we can make sense of it. Let me pray and off we go. God, thank you for a, a safe night to come out here. God, thank you for our safety each and every day as we go about. We just assume if we drive well, pay attention, we'll be okay. But we know that you protect us many, many times. And for those opportunities that you do that, and when we become aware of them, God, we just want to thank you for being a provider God and a, a God who cares and protects us in moments we don't even always know. Thank you for each and every person that's here tonight. I pray for those uh, that are on their way or those who may even have missed uh, this evening that you will bless their time with you, that you will open your word up. We know that this book isn't a mystery. You don't want us to slug through it having no idea what it's about. You want the word to become alive in us. You want the spirit to connect us to it so that it feeds our soul. It's bread, it's water, it's fire, it's life, it's breath. And uh, God, for the privilege of being able to talk about it, I want to do that respectfully and I want to do it meaningfully and I pray that it'll be an inspiration to all of us. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for being here with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, lesson seven. We're going to be talking about four books in your New Testament. The books, the letters of First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians. Okay? We've entitled them for this particular look and why I'm grouping them together. Uh, not originally my idea, but I liked how they did it. It's the problem-solving epistles. Okay? Uh, epistle is not a word we use in our language, so what's the equivalent? It's a letter. It's not, though, a personal letter. Okay? It's like a corporate memo, if you can look at it that way. This would have been something that would have been written to a group of people on mission, on purpose, on goal. So it's like a memo in an organization. If uh, I, don't, I don't do this very often. In fact, I don't know that I, I ever have. Oh, yeah, I did one time. Uh, I sent a memo out to all the people who work here. I don't see myself as a boss, so I have to put that in context. Uh, I'm a colleague who has a little more responsibilities than they do. And there was one time I walked down into the kitchen, and it was an absolute mess. And so I just decided I would play dad, and I sent an email out to our entire team saying, I'm not your mom, no one else is, clean up your own mess after lunch. Uh, I was made fun of, 
I was appreciated, I was thanked, and I was ignored. So it was an effective memo. <laughs> but everybody understood that that wasn't a personal, how are you, hope your day's great, love you. It was a, come on, we're better than this. If you, if you have lunch down there, clean up your own mess because you may be the last person in the kitchen and nobody else should have to walk into that, all right? Ladies, nod your heads. Guys are going, really? Okay, so <laughs> the, the memo was partially effective. That's what these epistles are. It's a letter from somebody who has the, the responsibility and authority to speak, and Paul's speaking. We know that Paul went on missionary uh, travels. Uh, you'll notice that Paul was run out of most every town he went into because A, he was either perceived as the church or the Christian killer, what he was in the first phase of his life, or he betrayed the religious elite and gave up his status. So Paul would be in towns and he would preach the gospel. And, and here's what I want you to, to know. He, he was not a church planter. Okay? Paul was a preacher of the gospel. And when you present the gospel, churches begin. Can you, can you see the difference? I know it's a small delineation, but I want to make it emphatically. You can start churches and not preach the gospel. But I don't believe you can preach the gospel and not start churches. All right, that's a little bit of wordplay. I know it's, it's late, your bellies are full of dinner, you haven't had enough coffee, but ponder that with me. There are people that are out there starting churches who aren't preaching the truth of the gospel. You can get a crowd without much work. But Paul would preach the gospel and churches would begin. And they would last. Now, one of the things that I was challenged when I was in college uh, studying the book of Acts was a lot of the churches that we celebrate, like in Revelation, when the letters of the seven churches of Asia, uh, they're not sure that there are any churches still in those regions today. Now, I know this is a frightening thing when you think of the local church as the church. But there's no guarantee in 20 years that there will be a Christ Church of Orinoco. They'll remember us because they're going to drive out here and go, what are all these weird-shaped buildings doing? But there's no guarantee that if we stop preaching the gospel that this church will exist. And there's also no guarantee that if we keep preaching the gospel that God might move us from this place to another place to another place so that what happens? Churches happen because the gospel gets preached. When Paul writes these memos, epistles, <clears throat> these directives... He's writing them to a group of people who he preached the gospel to. They came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they began to congregate. But there's no strategy in the New Testament to go establish these things we call churches that we do now. Now, the way we do it now isn't bad. It's an evolution. But when Paul went in, he gathered people, he introduced them to Jesus, Jesus showed up and changed their lives, and they stayed together in community, and Paul would write them letters to encourage them. Now, some of you may remember this. If you've been here long enough, it's at least in the six years I've been here, you might remember that the way I started preaching this church was, I said, let's measure the church the way God measures the church. And we've talked about this off and on. I don't say many things memorable, so I don't expect you to remember this. But some of you might say, yeah, I kind of do. When Paul measures a church, and you know how he measured the church, by the way he wrote these letters, at the beginning of every one of his letters to the local church, he would encourage them or get on them because of these three things. Do you remember what those three things were? Bueller? Anyone? Faith, hope, and love. Read the introductory material to any one of Paul's letters. I thank God for your faith. I thank God for your hope. I thank God for your love. Or, I thank God for your love and your faith, but you've lost your hope. The reason he wrote the letter 
was when you preach the gospel, it produces faith, hope, and love. And Paul would go on to say, and the greatest of these is what? So when Paul saw a church doing well, like Colossians, he didn't get on them for anything. He encouraged them to continue on. When he saw a church, like we'll talk about tonight, Thessalonians, who had lost their hope, he wrote them a letter saying, I appreciate your love and your faith, but you've lost your hope. Don't lose your hope. Your hope is still in Jesus. He hasn't come and left you behind. So these are memos to churches that had problems. I want to look at the very first one. This is the granddaddy of all problem churches. It's the letter to the church of Corinthians, the first letter. So let me give you the the facts about it. Who wrote it? Paul. What did he write about? How to deal with disputes. There were issues in the church and Paul addressed them. This is one of the, the uh, frankest, is that a word? This is the, one of the most frank letters he will write. In fact, we'll talk about it in just a moment. He actually writes 2 Corinthians to make sure they're okay. I remember one time my dad went to get my attention. I, it was all in jest, but I kind of, I would never lip off to my father. I'm a mouthy person, but I would never do that to my dad. And I went by and he said, he said something to me and I said, yeah, right, old man. And so he decided to be funny, turn around and just kind of swap me and he caught me for real. I mean, to the point that his hand hurt and my whole body shook. And he laughed and he goes, old man, huh? And I got about three steps later and he goes, hey, are you all right? I was like, you know, I'm biting my lip. <laughs> Can't hit your dad, but I'm like, oh, don't you go to sleep? You know, any of that kind of thing. As I walked away, hold my behind, and he just kind of chuckled, but are you okay? Paul writes a second letter to Corinthians in that, I told you the truth, and sometimes the truth is hard. Are you okay? Because Paul doesn't tell us the truth so that we go in our room and sulk. Paul tells us the truth so we repent. So when the first letter of Corinthians is about disputes and how, does, how should they repent, we'll talk about that more in a second. Uh, where were they? In the town of Corinth. Corinth was a, you could equate it to a San Francisco, a New York, a Chicago. It was a multicultural center that will play into some of the issues that church faced. It was written, of course, remember the variants. If I give you a date, when it was written. I'm trying to give you what most scholarships will concede as a fair estimate. But if I say to you, like right now, 57 AD, I'm not telling you I would die for that date. Give it a variance of two or three years on either end and you're in the pocket. So somewhere around 57 AD. And why did he write it? To show them how to rebuild a loving community. This letter is written to a church who had faith in Jesus had hope of the gospel truth, but they did not demonstrate love toward God or toward each other. So this is a corrective letter about love. All right, you can see some of the information I've given you here. Uh, First century Corinth was a busy city of about 250,000. Its populations included native Greeks, a large number of Jews, uh, those from the Orient, uh, Roman settlers, government officials, businessmen, priestesses and prostitutes in Corinth, The temple to Aphrodite helped create a climate of moral laxness. Picture a combination of New York City and Las Vegas. Where what happens in Vegas, what? How would you know that? I I need to pray for all of you. You knew that. (laughs) The blessings of television. Yes, we are forgiven, aren't we? Uh, So the plan of Paul's first letter was easy to follow. Each new topic, and this is unique in his book, or this letter rather, in each new topic he addresses, he begins the phrase with now concerning. Now, remember why I'm telling you all this. So if you would sit down today and open 1 Corinthians, I want you to know what it's about going into it. And every time you hear now concerning, Paul's moved on to another issue that needs to be addressed. 
you ever had one of those come to Jesus meetings with your boss or your parent or whoever, your spouse, and they come to you and they say, I want to talk to you about four things. You know when they move from one point to the other, right? There was this, and then the other day, you said this, and you can tell the markation of we're on to a different topic. This is exactly what Paul does with the expression now concerning. So let's begin with the first issue. I've tried not to give you a bunch of blanks here because I want to engage your mind. And as you read it, I want to give you a little bit of running commentary and move on. We're actually going to do 1 Corinthians this fall. I'm very excited about it. So I'm doing research on this book currently. I have begun to read some commentaries on it and so forth. We're going to do a series beginning in September all the way through, uh, most likely the end of November, from 1 Corinthians, dealing with what are issues in the church that cannot be. It's not okay. It's not going to be a beat you up series. But you're going to see that 1 Corinthians could very well be 1 Missouri. What's going on there is going on in our culture every day. We're not exempt. You don't have to be big city. You can be Mayberry, USA like we are and have these same issues present. And Paul said, don't be this. This isn't the Lord's church. Uh, you know, live for a, a different kind of love. So the problem, and I gave you the verses. Here's a strict outline on it. The unity of the church is shattered by a group that quarrel over, and my terminology, celebrity leaders this is the letter where Paul will say some say you were baptized by so and so and some say you were baptized by so and so and some say you were baptized by so and so but he said but you understand the person who baptized you had nothing to do with why you were baptized okay so you know I went to Mark Driscoll's church or I went to John Piper's church or I went to this church and this guy was my pastor and Paul's like and I don't get your point you know I've shared this so many times it's going to probably be the only thing you remember I ever say but my father told me on the day I was ordained the Sunday after you leave they're going to have church so if you make it about you you're going to be disappointed just do what you've been asked to do handle your responsibilities and then if the church is healthier when you're gone they may not notice you're gone that's a healthy perspective but we live in the day of the rock star I've got to sit under this person's teacher even college students today will say well he, he or she was my mentor that's a huge word. The word mentor meant that you went and did whatever they told you to do, no questions asked. I don't know that I have anybody mentoring under me. So he said, don't base your Christianity on what brand of church you went to, how cool or famous or popular or well-written, how many books your pastor turned out. Don't, don't put yourself under a man that way or a woman that way. That's unhealthy. So he talks about it. He talks about Christian truth talks about human wisdom versus God's wisdom. Human wisdom is shown through power. God's wisdom is shown through love and humility. Sounds like Jesus. God's wisdom must be discerned by those who rely on the Spirit. And if you come back on Sunday morning, we'll talk a little bit more about how the power of God is truly accessed by us. How, how do we live under the power of God working through us into others, not just for us? And it's shown in truth. The solution. Human leaders are to be respected as servants entrusted with the sacred things of God. Okay. Um, I was told when I went to college, and, and I, listen, I'm not the example of how to do this by any means, but I was told by my preaching professor how you handle compliments is the litmus test every day of your life of whether or not you remember where you got your material. So I think it's funny when someone will come up, a friend of mine, Mike Smith, will come up to me almost every Sunday because he knows I can't stand it. So he's jabbing me with it. And he's like, that was a great sermon. And I always laugh at him and go, A, it wasn't. 
and B, I got good material. If you use that book, it's really hard to be horrible. Now, some of you are going, but you are. Now, just relax. <laughs> but if you focus on the Word of God, Ron and I don't have to agree. If I can show you the Word of God says that, people in the room can be furious, but who are they not mad at? Don't be mad at me. I'm telling you what the Word of God says. That's our obligation is to preach the truth in season and out. And so what I love about this church, and let me give you attaboys and girls. We've said some really hard things off this stage. A number of us have. And I, know, I don't know of one meeting in the back room with the elders wondering how long it's going to take to get rid of us. Thank you for that. You know there's a lot of churches that if you're bold in the pulpit, you're probably unemployed by the end of the week. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I get to be a part of you all because you're gracious and kind and patient. Paul says it's about letting the servants of God deliver the mysteries of God to those who don't know the mystery. And uh, if you want to pray something for this church, please pray that we continue to be hungry for the word of God because that's what's going to grow. That's what's going to change lives. And all of us, when we're gone, this church can still exist if the word of God is the reason we get together. Uh, and I dig it. Issue number two, the problem, sexual immorality. And the problem was it was not being addressed. There's an example where Paul points out that there was a man sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. And this, this church in Corinth, now here's what I want to break the bubble on. I don't want you to picture the church of Corinth as a building like this where everybody from Corinth came to one location. It's very probable that the church of Corinth could have been a series of house churches too. Okay, we in America snapped to grid everything we experience. So there was this big first church of Corinth with a sign, you know, and a coffee shop and all this kind of, and it wasn't, that wasn't it. It could have been a series of 19 homes and then they gathered together in public places, but they also got in homes, prayed together. So in that environment, none of this changes. But this group of Christians in Corinth were very proud of how this relationship could happen in their church and that they were open to it. And this is where Paul strikes the first nerve. He says, how can you treat what God has called wrong right? Now, I don't want to be too pithy or political. Preach that today, we have the same problem Corinth does. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament that when we turn our hearts to idols, we lose the ability to blush. We lose the ability to be ashamed of our behavior. And I, I don't want to be that guy, but I need to be that guy. If we're going to preach the truth, it's now unacceptable to tell anybody that their behavior is inappropriate. Now, we could do a better job in how we say that it's inappropriate. Okay? Sometimes, Christians, when you're picketing, Westboro Baptist, when you're picketing, shame on you. That doesn't represent Jesus in any form or faction. Not at all. Jesus was never cruel. Jesus never took advantage of people in their pain and their remorse and tried to shame them. He never did any of that. I'm grateful he didn't. So we shouldn't either. But there is a difference between being too harsh and not standing up for what is true because if we really love the people, we will tell them that what they're doing is hurting them, not that it's just wrong. People need to know why. All of us have had, if we've had kids, we've all had that moment. <laughs> I'll never forget my dad saying, Mark, don't put the fork in the outlet. And I'm like, I'm not gonna. And he said, don't put the fork in the outlet. <laughs> yeah, I might have. And it blew my hand back and that fork went across the room and my dad looked at me and he said, don't put the fork in the outlet. He didn't have to tell me after I got totally <laughs> shocked. But he's like, you know what? I knew it wasn't gonna kill you. 
He told, I heard him tell my mom that. He wasn't going to kill him. He learned. <laughs> my arm jingled for eight days, but <laughs> valuable lesson. There's moments in time where what person's living in, we can direct them kindly by saying, that's not going to pay off. That's not going to pay off. That's not going to pay off. Got a doctor in the house. I don't know if you've read this. And so, of course, I get all my stuff off the internet, which never lies. But there's a discussion now about, and Scott Ensminger and I were talking about it, there's a discussion right now about a new strain of HIV that's come out that the medicines with the original strain are not taken care of. Now, before we all say that's a curse from God on people that are sexually immoral, I don't believe that, but I'll tell you this. You can't misuse your body contrary to the way the creator created it and expect your body to be cool with that. The body rebels. Gonorrhea, all of those diseases are what? There's natural physiological reaction to the misuse of the body. So we look at that and we go, Paul wasn't playing, was he? We don't have the right to say poor behavior is okay. So Paul writes in this letter. It's one of the most controversial passages. Uh, all you got to do is turn on CNN and find the talking heads, and they're going to bring up some of the things Paul says about how this book is old. You know, why should a 2,000-year-old book have any rev- uh, relevance to our day today? You need to be careful. Now, and please, here's what I want you to not hear me say tonight. You'll notice I did not talk about same-sex or opposite sex. I talked about sexual immorality as defined by God. And the branches of that are varied. So let's not pick one of them and make it the cause of the week and ignore all the others that are permitted by everybody else. Paul didn't do that, neither should we. So what's the solution, Paul says? You guys are ready. It's going to be a fun night. Expel the wicked from among you. Don't allow them to be a part of the fellowship. How do you do that today when they can just go down the road to the next church? So what you have is you have a lot of people just migrating from camp to camp because they don't like to be told, I didn't like Mark because Mark was too harsh on that subject. And, you know, or uh, I, d- I didn't want to go hear Randy at College Heights or I didn't want to go hear John at Forest Park or I didn't want to hear Tim at Fur Road. So I just went from church to church to church and bounced around because I didn't like what I was hearing. That's reasonable. I don't like what I say sometimes too. There's no bigger critic in this place than me on a Sunday morning. I go to the house and Heather's like, that was, that, was, that was pretty good. That was horrible. I said that wrong, and then I, I messed that line up, and I forgot the whole important piece in the middle, and she's like, yeesh, where were you? I'm my worst critic, so I'd leave here too. But when people leave because they've been confronted with sin, notice what Paul said, because the church was localized and they were in each other's lives, to be able to say, if you're going to continue to mock Jesus by the way you live, I would rather not associate with you, that had power and weight and depth. In our culture, it's hard to discipline people in the church. They just go down the street. And unfortunately, we in the church business will accept anybody. Hey, yay, we got a new person. Instead of understanding, the best thing we can do is send them back home and fix what's broke. You guys got real quiet. Okay. So, it, and, and I use the term wicked because that's Paul's term. We're not talking about mistaken. We're not talking about accidental. We're talking about a conscientious choice to live outside of God's declared will. That needs to be addressed or the church becomes sick. Third issue. Some had put a spin on Paul's comments that it's good for a man not to marry. Okay, Paul, I love it. Paul's not, I'm not the only preacher who made a statement that was overreaching and then had to preach a sermon following it to correct his error. Paul said it's better for a man not to marry. And people are like, well then, you know, that's what the Greeks say, that if anything that satisfies your body is too good, and other people said anything that satisfies your body is pure evil. And Paul said, no, no, my point is, 
And he's got an interesting point in 1 Corinthians 7. When you read it, you'll know it. He says, it's better for a person not to be married because you can focus more of your attention on the kingdom of God when you don't have the interest of living with another person and children and the obligations of that. And I think it's okay in this room to go, that's exactly right. We make fun of the Catholic Church because of their stand on celibacy and a priesthood that's unmarried. They're actually following Paul's advice. But what they miss out on is Paul says not everybody has the gift to be celibate. So to make everyone follow that rule when it's not fitting, look at some of the, the unfortunate things that have happened because of it. And so that's not a slam against the Catholic Church, although it may appear. It's when we try to make Scripture fit in a certain way that God never intended it to. But Paul wasn't saying that it's, it's not good to have sexual relationship, it's not good to be married, it's not good to have children. He wasn't saying that at all. Uh, so what was the solution to this issue? That the married should not give up sexual relations and they should not seek divorce. Divorce is a controversial issue. Paul addresses it. We'll talk about it this fall. Uh, I grew up in a church, and I don't mean disrespect, but I grew up in a church where if it wasn't preached, it was insinuated across the board. People that got divorced really didn't love Jesus. And I remember, even as a kid, that not settling in my heart very easily. It's like that... You know, my, my dad had a, uh, we had neighbors, and my dad and another neighbor had to go down and stop a man from beating his wife two houses down from ours. And I remember my dad coming home just furious. And I overheard them, probably because I was told to go to my room and I didn't obey. I stayed downstairs and I listened to my mom and dad in the kitchen talk this thing out. And my dad said, I couldn't tell her to leave him. My dad and I have talked about that since I became an adult. And he wished now that he'd had the freedom to say, no man should lay his hands on you like that. He doesn't deserve you. Get away from him. It's unsafe. But in the culture that said divorce is the worst thing a Christian can do, this poor woman had to stay in a house with a man that didn't love her like Christ loved the church. Don't hear me say divorce is a good thing. It doesn't solve anything. Sometimes it's the only option in a horrible setting. Paul says you're not to seek it. But he says also, if you become a believer and you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to leave you because you love Jesus, do you know what Paul told you to do? Let him go. I never heard that passage growing up. Because that would have taught me there are moments when evil wins and you have to protect the innocent. So you have this issue of divorce. So Paul says, you know, chapter 7, verse 5, if you're married... Enjoy sexual intimacy and don't withhold it from one another as punishment or payment. Second thing, and that sermon will be real popular with the college kids next fall. <laughs> we'll probably have a you know, large crowd that day. And the other one is, keep your commitment. As a believer, hold your commitment before God. Honor that. And there are good reasons to remain single. And uh, any unmarried person may wed without sinning. Here's what I want you to notice. Look at all the correctives Paul had to put in place. He made a statement, it's better for a person not to marry and they need to come in. Okay, but if you're going to get married, that's cool. You can have sex and you can enjoy one another and stay together, fight for each other. Or you can remain single and that's okay. And if you want to get married, it's not a sin to get married. Notice all the variations. What does Satan do when the truth goes out? He likes to splinter it and section us all off into our, our favorite parts of it. Corinthians is a powerful letter. Issue number four, the problem. Most meat sold in the first century was from animals that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. 
And the Corinthians would shop in these markets at these pagan temples, and there were some people, this is where legalism shows up in the early church, that not only is my conscience bothered of eating a steak that was sacrificed to a God that's not real, but not only does it bother my conscience, but any of you on this side of the room that would dare do that, you must not love Jesus. And I thank God I didn't grow up in a culture that said meeting, or eating meat sacrificed to idols was wrong. But man, I grew up in a culture that said if you played cards, if you went to movies, if you said the word beer, if you smoked cigarettes, oh, my dad, if you got a tattoo, my dad's got a bunch of them. My dad's got one right here. My dad is so scared of snakes that we would, just for the joy of it, put rubber snakes around the house to watch him pass out. And my father was so drunk in the army that he got a snake around his wrist. That's how drunk he was. Got a black cat and a 13. Got his name here and mom here. Whenever my dad would serve at the communion table, he'd wear a long sleeve shirt no matter how hot it was. Because he, then he finally, he just realized, I grew up with my dad going, this is what happens when you get drunk and you're stupid. Now I look at these guys walking around and they're all marked up. And if you got one, I'm not judging you. But I grew up in a house that, man, if I had come home, I could come home and say I killed a family of five. And my dad would go, well, work through it. You came home with a tattoo, he's like, out, go. Never see you again. Legalism shows up in the funniest places. I went to Bible college before I heard that Christians don't play cards. My dad was an elder in the church. He taught me to play euchre. We had card nights on Saturday nights. We had the felt table with the cup holders and the chips and the real cards. And if you didn't deal right, my dad went off on you. And I'm thinking, man, we weren't Christian at all. I've made a lot intentionally, I've made fun of legalism. But there's a number of us in this room that have been scarred by it. Uh, We've been questioned. We've been denounced. We've been belittled over something that's an opinion. Now, what is Paul's solution to this concept? He says, apply the principle, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Okay, my son turned 21. He goes, Ozark Christian College. Some of you are going, oh, when he turned 21, he was safe. Are you kidding me? I taught at a Christian college for 12 years. Those kids aren't any different than the kids at Missouri Southern. They're not. And I don't belittle them that way. Let's be honest. What were you like at 21? When it first became okay. So I said to Alex, so have you done it yet? No. I said, really? No. And I believe him. And I said, but here, just because you dodged it the first two months of being 21 rest of your life, you're going to have to make choices. Everything, listen to me, everything is permissible, but not everything should be done. That, if you get that right, you'll find the freedom in Christ you should have, no matter what anybody else says to you. Now, I know that there are people that have struggled with alcohol in this room, so please don't take what I said making light of that. I am still that boy's dad. For the rest of my life, I'm going to ask him, are you living out the life you say you want to live? Now, if he would have said to me, here's what I want to say. If he would have said to me, I tried it. No judgment on my part. It's legal. It's not always wise. The Bible says that alcohol is not fit for kings and rulers. Did you know that in the Proverbs? It serves you no purpose. It does you no benefit to engage in something if you can't control it. Let's talk about overeating. Pardon? That's the Christian sin that's been permitted. Okay, we're good. Or what would happen if the cafe wasn't open and the coffee wasn't free? 
I can go all night. Because I, I worked at a church where if you didn't come on Sunday night, you must not really have loved Jesus. If you didn't come to Wednesday night Bible study, if your kids didn't go to VBS, if you didn't, I could go on and on and on. I can make it up and you'd still think it's true. Why? Because when Christians get together, we try to control one another with behavior instead of being led by the Spirit of God to be what he's designed us to be. This is what Paul's talking about when he says meat sacrifice to idols. The solution is to don't do anything that causes somebody else to stumble. Okay? If you've got friends who cannot control their alcohol, it is wrong for us, and I mean wrong ethically, to drink around them. I don't know that there's any purpose in alcohol. But if you have people that struggle with this, if you have people that struggle with lust or have an issue with gambling, why would you invite them to go to a casino to the buffet? Jesus says it's not about what you want in your freedom. Now, we have to also be careful because there are some people that I like to call the professional stumbling blocks who they will threaten to stumble every time you do something because they're trying to control you with their weakness. Don't let yourself be taken control of by that either. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And you have to make wise choices. Now, here's, here's a pastoral comment. I don't find anywhere in Scripture that I get to make those choices alone. This is what it took me till about the age of 24 to figure out. I can decide what's permissible for me, and yet, almost every time I've done that, what's been my issue? I'm selfish by nature. I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want you to tell me I can't. So when you live in a true community... You speak into things. Uh, my, my wife's father had an alcohol problem. So when Heather and I met, one of the things she just said is, I don't want that in our house. I never grew up with that in our house. That's not an issue. But I could say, well, it's my right to have alcohol in my house too. But why would I do that if I understand what Paul's saying? If that's a stumbling block to my wife and she doesn't want that and that's our house, could I love her enough to say no? The elders of this church said to me, would you never drink alcohol to be the preacher of this church? And my response is, yeah, I'd do that to be here. Could I have said, it's my right to do whatever I want? Yeah, absolutely. It's our right not to offer me the position too. <laughs> when you live in community, I live for you, you live for me. And I realize I represent you in this community and if I'm doing things that you would have trouble with, I have to be real careful. I'm never not your preacher. And I don't say that as a complaint. It helps keep me on the straight road. I put a, if I put a political sign in my yard, guess what my neighbors think? Christ Church of Oronogo supporting that candidate so I don't put political signs in my yard because my mentors, my professors, my, my influencers said to me, if you're going to stand up as a representation of the word of God in a community, you better stand tall and on purpose. I don't always reach that goal, but I'm reminded of it regularly. So I love that this isn't a legalistic church. I really do. I love that we don't talk about what defines a believer outside of faith, hope, and love. But privately, you and I can have conversations about that's not a wise choice. That what you're doing is going to harm you and other people. You can't do that to us. And those are fair conversations. Most Christians don't want to deal with those. They'd rather have the preacher get on the people who aren't in the room than to have a conversation with the people who are. And this is the problem in the Corinthian church, and Paul addresses it. I'll go a little bit quicker here. Number five. The problem was women were praying and prophesying in public worship with their heads uncovered. Isn't that horrible? Okay, outside of Easter hats on the cute little girls on, on Easter morning, it, that was a cultural issue. And I want to be careful 
Because people will say, you know, you can't write off the Bible based on culture. But there are some passages that, notice this. Paul says it to the Corinthians, but he doesn't bring it up when he talks about worship to a couple of other churches in his letters. What can we derive from that? It was an issue in Corinth. It was addressed to Corinth. Whether Paul knew it or not, this letter is being dissected by a bald guy in Missouri 2,000 years later. But when he wrote it, who was he writing it to? The people of Corinth in that town at that moment. We always have to snap it into that lens before we try to transpose it into ours, to the worldview we have. And so it wasn't just that they were worshiping with their heads uncovered. This was new. And in a patriarchal culture, women didn't have the same status. In Galatians, when it says there's no free or slave, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, that was shocking. Everybody got invited in. I was sitting in Northway Church of Christ, my home church, one of the most holy places in my life, and I was bored during church one Sunday, so I grabbed my dad's Bible. I think my dad had every possible bulletin ever printed in that church shoved into that Bible. I would just go through and read through them, and I found the church bylaws. And I grabbed the church bylaws, and my brother Scott slid over next to me, and we just started reading. That's how bored we were. And then I read a line in that, and I elbowed my dad, and I and he gave me the look like don't interrupt me during church and I elbowed him again and I pointed at this line in the bylaws and I saw that moment where my dad's ears would get red and his nostrils would flare and I knew somebody was going to be in trouble and I just thank God it wasn't me and he grabbed those from me and he sat like that the rest of the church service after the church service I saw my dad go to the corner with the preacher and two of the elders and they were having a pretty one-sided conversation and we get in the car and I said dad is that real and my dad goes I've never seen that before a day in my life the church bylaws that were written in 1961 stated that African Americans who visited had to sit in the balcony. And when they wrote that in 1961, I'm going to venture to say this. It probably wasn't as racist as you and I realize it is right now. And I showed it to my dad and he, he snapped. They had a meeting, they changed the bylaws. In fact, they rewrote the entire thing. It took them about 19 years, but they got it all figured out. But they stopped that right away. Now, I said to dad, <laughs> this is one of my favorite moments about my father. He's so, so upfront. I said, who would do that to somebody else? And he looked at me and he goes, that's probably why you don't see any African-Americans worshiping with us. He was humiliated. But that was just sitting there in the culture. Nobody addressed it. And I'm just wondering who in that meeting suggested that and everybody went, Rumph. that's sick. Cultural. Women were stepping into new places, drawing attention to themselves in worship, it was unusual. It was taking away from why they were gathered, and Paul addressed it. We've had people come in here and say, why don't you do more of this, more of this, more of this in your worship? And we say, we don't stop anybody from worshiping. People raise their hands. People, I love, they go get their little guys, and if you're in here some hours during this row, you'll see five or six little toddlers out there dancing to worship. It's one of my favorite things in this church. Now, if a little kid was running up and down and tried to climb on the stage and hang out with Isaac during a song, we would say something because that's drawing attention to the child instead of attention to what we're all doing. Make sense? So you have freedom of expression in here. But the moment it becomes about you instead of about him, we're going to say, please don't. I tell both of my boys what my father told me. Don't embarrass me in public and I won't embarrass you in public. And I've got a young one who tries it. And I'm like, oh, Braden. So the other day he decided he was going to show off the other night in front of his friends, so um, he got out at school, and I stopped the car, and he got out, and I said, Braden, wait, because I waited for all of his buddies to get off the bus. 
And he tried to go in the school, and I said, come here. And I got down on a knee, and I said, kiss your daddy. And he's like, oh. I said, B, come on. Kiss your daddy. Oh, I tore him up. He walked in the school, hung his head down, and he got in the car. And I said, remember our deal? And he goes, yeah, I won't embarrass you ever again. I said, absolutely. Remember, you don't have to like me. I'll always be your dad. What's the solution? Paul tells the women to live appropriately, not in slavery, but to live appropriately to the honor of God. So if you want to raise your hands and worship here and sing out loud, if you want to twirl around and spin and clap and dance, knock yourselves out. As long as it's about Jesus, it's awesome. The moment we make it about ourselves, we need to take one for the team. It's kind of interesting. Issue number six. In first century paganism, ecstatic utterances and even seizures were thought to indicate closeness to God. Okay, I want to, I want to turn terms here. You might hear it being called speaking in tongues. I have been in places in my life where people have worshipped God in the speaking of tongues. It doesn't set my skin on edge. It doesn't bother me a whole lot. Here's what Paul said. There were people speaking in tongues and they were saying this to one another. If you don't speak in tongues, then you must not be saved. Be real careful about that. Jesus saves you, not your language. Don't you let anybody diminish the work of Christ in your life. Now, if the fruit of the Spirit's not coming out of you, you you need to wake up. Because if you're alive in Christ, you're going to produce fruit. If you're not producing fruit, there's something sick. But we're never going to make spiritual gifts about this. In fact, Paul said, if there's no one there to interpret what you're saying, keep it to yourself. Because a prophetic word spoken that's understood is always better than an utterance in tongues that's not. But what Paul doesn't say is, there's no tongues. Okay, (laughs) I just set the room on edge. Some of us believe... And what I mean by us is if you split this room, a third of the people in this room would believe that no one speaks in tongues anymore. Those things were stopped. And then another third believes, I don't know what to believe. And then another third says, no, people speak in tongues all the time. You guys, you just don't. I don't know who's right, but it doesn't matter. Because when we gather in worship, if it's about Jesus and someone has a prayer language and speaks. My understanding of the word in the Bible is it's not gibberish, it's a known language. Because on the day of Pentecost when they spoke in tongues, it was interpreted. People said, how's that dude speaking German? That's not real, but you get the point. I got this guy speaking French, this guy's speaking German, this guy's speaking Japanese, and they're all Jews who were fishermen. Because he was speaking to the audience. It wasn't this mumbling, mumbling, ecstatic language that nobody understood. And Paul said, hey, Don't make the gifts about you. The the gifts of the Spirit are not to be kept by you. They're to be dispensed to bless other people. That was the problem, and that was the solution. All right, issue number seven. Some were saying there was no resurrection. So Paul goes after it. And I've given you the material there, the instruction to the church. It's one of the most famous passages. Paul says, Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 500 witnesses, most important thing that took place in all of history. It's the one thing that legitimized Jesus without any question. The miracles, eh, Pharaoh's magicians did miracles. The, the preaching, they've been great preachers. And some of them talking nonsense, but they're just good. You know, Aristotle was a brilliant man. But he didn't talk about anything that mattered, nothing that lasted. And Jesus came in, and people were saying he's not raised, and Paul starts saying, no, go talk to this person and this person and this person and this person. In fact, he says, go talk to James, the brother of Jesus. 
If you've been paying attention in the Mark series, you'll notice that James was not a believer at the very beginning. He wasn't committed to Jesus. Remember he showed up and wanted to take Jesus away because he thought he'd lost his mind? He's the one who tried to force Jesus to go to Jerusalem before it was his time and, and tell everybody he was king. And yet in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, when they have a major decision to be made by the church, who was the one who headed the council? It wasn't Peter. If Peter was the first pope, then I have to ask the question, why was James leading the council of Jerusalem when the decision was made how to introduce the Gentiles? It was the, the half-brother of Jesus that, who converted. How did he convert the resurrection? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, James was an eyewitness to it. Go ask him. Here's a guy who thought Jesus lost his nut. Now he's turning around going, he's God. He was right, I was wrong. Well, what convinced you, James? The resurrection. Read the book of James, and you'll see James allude to the power of that resurrection throughout the whole book. It altered his life. All right. Now, some of you are going, there's no way we finish tonight. Oh, trust me. I'll bring this thing home because the other books are smaller. Second Corinthians. Who wrote it? Paul. What did he write about? I'm just going to give you a simple phrase. His ministry. His ministry. It's a defense letter. It's a defense to the strong word he gave in 1 Corinthians. Where did he write it? Corinth. When did he write it? About 58 AD. Give or take a year. This was written within a year or two from the original letter. And why did he write it? To encourage people who were hurt by the first letter and to clarify their misunderstanding. He wrote it to, to help those that were hurt by the first letter or challenged, and then he wanted to clarify the misunderstandings. Paul had got response back from the people of Corinth that his letter was not well received. He didn't care, but he wanted to make sure they understood. So, the most personal of Paul's letters takes up three distinct topics. Chapters 1 through 7 is about his conduct and ministry. That's your first blank. His conduct and ministry. Chapters 8 and 9 are preacher's favorites. He encouraged the Corinthians to give generously to spreading the church throughout the world. To give generously. And then this is kind of fun. Verses 10 through 13. Paul confronts and warns those who challenge his authority as an apostle. I was in Walmart last... No, the week before, getting stuff to go on a, on a trip with Matt Gilchrist. And uh, there was this beautiful little girl. She was adorable. Red hair, had it in a ponytail, little jock suit on. She was just this adorable little kid. I'm betting she's six or seven years old. And her, she went over and got like those cuties, those little tangerines. She got a big bag. It was probably half the length of her. And she walked over to put it in the cart and her mom said, put it back. And this beautiful little girl looked at her and with the voice of a demon said, you can't tell me what to do. And me being me, I just kind of stood in the produce section going, this is, the, this is the best reality TV show in all the world right now. And I watched this mom turn around, and, and it was great. The mom goes, excuse me? And the little girl backed up, put the cuties away, stood next to her mom like this. And I thought, okay, that child understands the line, right? The mom, did, all she said was, excuse me. And the girl thought, oh, she ain't playing. And she snapped right to attention. She stood by her mom. 
and the mom was awesome because they went down and they were having a little bit of a conversation. The little girl was holding on to her mom's, very repentant-like, holding on to her mom's side, and all of a sudden the little girl got a big smile on her face and guess where she went? She went back and got a bag of cuties because her mom said, because of that conversation, okay, now you can have those. I thought that was good parenting right there. That's what Second Corinthians is, good parenting. Discipline, correction, and then acceptance and love in return. But Paul wants them to know when they say, who are you to tell me what to do? He said, I'll tell you who I am. I've been called by God to do this. And I'm the one who delivered the message of Christ to you. And that should be worthy of your respect. It's a pretty fair letter. The false super apostles, 2 Corinthians 11, who criticized Paul, bragged about their strength, and they made fun of Paul's weakness. There was a message at the preaching and teaching conference yesterday at Ozark. Uh, Nate Bush from Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, gave a depiction. It wasn't found in the Bible. It was found in a historical book that dated around the time of the Bible. So I can't guarantee you this is the way it was. But he had a great definition of the Apostle Paul. He said, picture George Costanza. That was the description. Balding, pointy nose, big ears, not much of a speaker, stooped over, looked old. So when these guys in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, and the ones that are making fun of me because I don't look the part, listen to the words I've told you and tell me if the Spirit doesn't affirm that I'm speaking truth. Paul would never have been a rock star pastor. He wasn't, he wasn't famous or popular because he held the room well. So Paul writes this letter to them and he, he keeps talking. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. None of us know what that is. But all we know is that three times Paul pleaded for God to take it away and God said, no, 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 you're good. I'm, I'm going to let you stay in this condition because you don't need to be what you think you need to be to do what I've asked you to do. Uh, powerful. All right, let's jump down to 1 Thessalonians. Encouragement for holy living. All right, let's guess. Who wrote it? Yes. That's a free point on every test. What was he encouraging them to do? To encourage further commitment. This is the church where hope is the issue. Love was the issue, the love for God, respect for God, and love for one another in the way they treated each other. Thessalonians is about hope. Where was it? Thessalonica. The date, somewhere between 51 and 52. And he wrote it to encourage holy living based on hope. This was another big commercial center with a naval port. Which meant that there was going to be a lot of industry and there was going to be a lot of different nations. That this would be one of those places like New York City at the turn of the century when people were coming over from Europe under duress and they were all taken through Boston and New York and Philadelphia. So there would have been a confluence of different religions, different cultural backgrounds and understanding. So Paul writes this letter to them. Timothy had visited the city and brought back a report to Paul that the message had been preached and church had resumed or began. And uh, you'll notice there's a line here, and I've done some research on this. I left it in based on some of the, the notes I had previously. This letter is probably the first of Paul's epistles. There's some debate on that. 
If it's not the first, Corinthians was. So the date, again, is not always, you know, there's not a uniformity because they didn't date the letters the same way we would. Paul had three chief aims in writing this letter. To express thanks to God for the healthy condition of the church. There is such a thing as church health. There's a fruitfulness that comes, and Paul is grateful for it. Secondly, to reaffirm his affection for the congregation. So what you have here is faith, love, and thirdly, to encourage them to continue in their commitment to godly living. To encourage them to continue in their commitment to godly living. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. So feel free to vocalize a response. This isn't Sunday morning, so it's legal, right? What would stop you from obeying the scriptures? Just take a moment, ponder, talk to one another. I want you to fashion an answer. What would, what would stop you from reading God's word and choosing to no longer obey it? Okay, while you're pondering the deep theological answer, let me ask you this question. How many of us had a parent who threatened discipline, but you knew at a very early age it would take them a long time to fulfill that promise? Can I, any, any answer? It's okay, I'm not judging them. So why didn't you obey them? Because you didn't have to. Right? If mom kept saying, you do that one more time, yeah, mom, I've been doing it 18 times. Right? Why do kids know instantly? What would cause us to not obey the scriptures? Okay, free will. <laughs> Very philosophical, and you're correct. Pragmatically. Pardon? Yeah, if you don't think it matters. Obedience comes down to whether or not you believe God is telling you the truth. If there is no God, or if you believe Jesus returned and left you here, how would the Ten Commandments work? Right? Isn't it human nature to say, if there's no penalty or there's no reward, you don't have my attention? Why do you show up to work on time? If you do. Why do you show up to work on time? So you don't get fired. Well, why don't you want to be fired? You could be free. You could sleep all day. What? You, money? What's this money thing you speak of? Yeah, because you need money to buy heat for your house, to feed your family, to insure yourself to do all that, right? So you obey the expectations of your master, pardon the expression, but it is your master, so that you'll receive the reward of compensation to live your life the way you choose. Why would you obey the word of God? It's, not, it's okay for us to admit we obey because we believe God's real and there's a reward for being faithful. And you don't obey when you don't believe what? That God is real. And you're, no, no, I believe God's real. No, if you believe the wrath of God as depicted in the Old Testament, you wouldn't spend a lot of time debating whether or not that God's will for you is reasonable. So in today's culture where we can't preach fire and brimstone anymore, because, you know, that just doesn't work in today's world. Yeah, ask my boys how it works. Don't talk to your mother that way. Why? Because you don't want to play with me, do you? No, sir. I'm not threatening them physically, but I'm letting them know the game changes when you disrespect Heather. The, the privileges you get to open my refrigerator and get food when you're hungry, 
to decide when you get up and when you go to bed and what you watch on television, all of those things. If mama ain't happy, you don't get any of that. Is that bad parenting? I don't know. It's the only way I know. Biblically, what does my Bible tell me? If I believe that there is a God and he's a rewarder of those who serve him, I will serve him for the promised reward of my loving God, not just the fear of the wrathful God that will come. So why does Paul write this letter? Because some of the Thessalonians had believed that Jesus wasn't coming back. Would that cause you to live your life differently? Yeah. So, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, there in bold. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's the heartbeat. That's the key passage in this whole letter was the fourth chapter where he's saying he will come back. There's, and I, w- I won't be able to go into great length on it. There is a theological school called preterism. Okay? Preterism is a school of belief that says that Jesus has already returned and this is the kingdom he restored. I'd be highly disappointed. I mean, just honestly. If, if this is the fixed kingdom... And the other one was really jacked up. But preterism teaches that. That's a basic understanding. I mean, theologians will argue nuances, but the truth is that's what preterism teaches, that Jesus has already returned, and this is it, and we're living this new kingdom out, and it's within us, and, you know, the heaven mansions, all of that was figurative, and, and on and on and on. Uh, preterism is very much what First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians are written about. Paul is saying, no, 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 he'll come back. In fact, it's in these letters that Paul gives that great passage of scripture where he says, and remember, and the sky will unfold and every knee will bow and every tongue will... Yeah, yeah, I like that passage. In other words, the best is yet to come. Okay? It's an old preacher's illustration. It's probably a thousand years old, but I still like it because I like pie. It's about the preacher who uh, said the favorite thing about his wife was she would come and clear the dishes from the table and she would say to him periodically, keep your fork. What does that mean? There's a piece of pie somewhere. So she said he would, or she would clean the table. And Glenn Keller always told this story. And he said his wife would always say, no, keep your fork. And he always knew the best part of the meal was coming. And I think if, if I can be so hokey, the letter to the Thessalonians is keep your fork. Don't cash in. Don't quit yet. Don't give up because some knucklehead's telling you that Jesus already came back and this is it. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so it will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Notice that. Encourage each other and when you encourage people, what do you build? Faith, love, or hope? Hope. Hope. 2 Thessalonians. More on the second coming. All right, let's see if you can go four for four. Who wrote it? Yes. Brilliant. What's he writing about? Jesus' return. You know where? Thessalonica. I like the exact date definition I got from one commentator. When was it written? A few months after the first. (laughs) That's that's pretty safe. (laughs) Sometime after the first. That's why we call it the second letter. Oh, and if you want to have fun and appear like a know-it-all, sometimes we preachers are snarky because we read something in a book. 
Most scholars believe that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is probably 4 Corinthians. If you read the letter, they believe that there's some missing elements that were catching part of the conversations. Okay, now if that makes you panic about, if we don't have the first letter, can we understand the others? Yeah, you can understand 1 Corinthians, just read it. He's not playing any games. Stop doing that, start doing this, stop doing that, start doing this. Why? Because you love the Lord, and you want to build his kingdom, not yours. But there's debate as to the sequence. We know that first came before second, but we don't know if it's first, second, third, and if the second letter is fifth, ninth, or twelfth, we don't know. But they are a form, there's some form of sequence there. Okay. Um, last piece here. Paul's first letter hadn't cleared up their confusion about the future. In particular, the Thessalonians were under the impression that the persecution they experienced was part of the Great Tribulation. Paul told them that that was linked to history's end. Okay. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 24, there'll be wars and rumors of wars? And we talk about it today. I, I'll tell you my story. It was 1979. I was 14 years old. That would have put me about an f- eighth grader or freshman in high school. And uh, American hostages were taken captive in Iran. And I, con- I concluded at that moment, this was the apocalypse. Armageddon was going to happen because of this. So I did what every 14-year-old would do if he thinks it's the end of the world. I opened my Bible and began to read Revelation. And I read it and I felt no joy, no peace, no hope. There's a dragon, there's bowls being poured out, there's ulcers, there's horses. And I'm thinking, Jesus left 2,000 years ago and he's coming back on a horse? That seems pretty anticlimactic. Because, <laughs> I mean, I look at it now and I go, well, how would they have described an Apache helicopter? I always wonder in Ezekiel when they talk about the four-headed, you know, and, and each, each neck had seven heads and some were elephant. I'm making some of this up. But when they had all those imagery as a kid, I'm like, what? what? I think they were using imagery to say this is going to be the most unusual, supernatural thing you'll ever experience in your life. When Paul writes this letter, he's doing the same thing. You think that the end has come because there's wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes and there are these things going on all the time. I think that's what Jesus was saying. This world is never going to be right until I fix it. It's always going to be out of balance. There are going to be earthquakes and tidal waves. Remember 1989 when the Golden Gate Bridge crashed? Uh, I remember I played basketball at the Y, and I went in my car, and I knew it should be about the third inning of the World Series, and because I love baseball more than any other sport, I got in my car, and I turned on the radio, and I went to every AM sports station I could find in the state of Michigan. I couldn't find it. And I was like, I can't believe it's not on the radio. And I get home, and Heather's like, turn on the news. And I turn on the news, and they were talking about the Golden Gate Bridge. The morning after... A gentleman, I wish I would have recorded his name, but I was just a kid. This man stood on ABC News and he said these words, and I can quote it. He said, I can't believe we can't build a bridge that can withstand an earthquake. And I thought, have you ever read the Tower of Babylon? That you can't build something God can't knock over? Now, do I believe God caused the earthquake? Please, there's no room for that in my theology. But because this world is upside down and cracked, it's going to shake. It's going to wobble as it proceeds. And earthquakes are a part of that, and typhoons are a part of that, and hurricanes and tornadoes, we could all experience that. But to have a man raise his fist to the sky and say, why can't we build a bridge that can withhold an earthquake? Man, you got your hope in the wrong stuff. So there were these people panicking, going, wars and rumors of wars, and all of these natural disasters, what do we do? And Paul explains that this can't be, and reminds them that he told them about a man of lawlessness that Daniel talked about, and Jesus himself would appear. Now, some of us have been taught that there will be one person called the Antichrist. 
I want you to know in your New Testament, and nowhere any of your New Testament, is it ever said the Antichrist. It says Antichrist. Does that make a difference? Absolutely. There's a series of them. Anybody who stands in opposition to Jesus' lordship is, by definition, Antichrist. It's not one person. We put the word the in, but it's not in the original language. And there is a preposition the in the Greek. It's not present when the Antichrist is mentioned. So what difference does that make? It sounds like a little subtle linguistic trick. No, what I'm trying to tell you is every era of mankind has people who try to replace Jesus with themselves. And Paul says, no, no, no. What you're seeing is the natural evolution of evil. Read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And Paul talks about the progression that the world goes through when it trades God for itself and how it becomes corrupt and defunct. And you'll see a reflection of our culture. So Paul writes this letter to put their troubles in perspective. So the first piece, the first uh, 12 verses of the chapter, one, about present persecutions. Paul never prays that the persecution stops. He prays that they will be found faithful through it. So he prays for perseverance. Then, second point, concerning Christ coming for us, the second chapter, verse 1 through 17, the day of the Lord has not come. The power of the lawlessness is being temporarily restrained by the Holy Spirit. Now, did you catch that? Paul's saying, oh no, no. Satan's not able to do everything he wants to do. But he's trying to steal souls from, from Christ. When Jesus is withholding him from doing anything outside of his control. Go back to the Job passage. When, when Satan has to ask God permission. Um, you know, developing kind of a little paper in response to a request on that. When you look at that, you think, yeah, Satan is not equal to God, and he doesn't have control over everything. God has given him permission. I don't know why, but he has. And yet God still remains in control and sovereign, which means if God lets us go through hard times, we may not like that, but he's got that under control too, and it can all be for his glory. So what does he tell us? Chapter 3, he's going to pray for us. And I, I like the conclusion of verses 6 through 15. Don't sit around waiting for Jesus. Work and take care of yourselves. Okay, don't throw yourself on the ground. Don't move to a mountaintop. Don't all wear the ta- same tennis shoes and running suits and lay on bunk beds waiting for Jesus to come by with the trailer and take you away. How many, in, in my lifetime, how many times have I seen about these crazy groups that go and live in communes and wait because they're absolutely sure God's coming back with a U-Haul? Seriously? That's as bad as Jesus on a horse. It doesn't make any sense. If he created the world, why does he need transportation? Because it's a mental picture. So Paul writes these letters to these churches that are struggling. So if I asked you right now, take out a piece of paper, number one to four. Number one, tell me in one sentence what 1 Corinthians is about. Number two, tell me what 2 Corinthians is about. One sentence. Three, 1 Thessalonians. Four, 2 Thessalonians. Could you? Because when you open the book and you don't know what it's about, how many pages of a novel does it take you to get to before you figure it out? So I want you to be able to open these books of the Bible and have these notes to be able to say, okay, I want to run through my notes again. I remember Mark talked a lot about this and that. And, oh, and then he said that one thing. And then when you read First Corinthians, you're like, oh, I'm right in the middle of the story. And when you read First and Second Thessalonians, it's so different than First and Second 
Corinthians. Why? Because Paul wasn't writing to the same group of people about the same issue. If I wrote Heather a note card right now, and I wrote Braden a note card right now, it would come from the same guy who loves them both the same way, and they would sound completely different, and the topics would be completely different. So you can't read the Bible saying, well, it's just so hard to understand. That's why it's important to know the background of the text so that you can enter into their story and not try to make it fit into yours. And then every now and then you see yourself in the story and you're like, huh, I'm that guy too. I do those bonehead things they do. I struggle with the same fears they fear. Uh, I had a Sunday school teacher ask me one time in class, his name was Don Root, very influential in my life, but he said, he said, what if you live the rest of your life and find out there is no God? This was my Sunday school teacher. And he said, what would you do? And I remember we gave all the typical, I think it was sixth grade, we gave all the typical answers. Well, I at least lived a good life. And Don answered every one of our statements with, and you would die. You would live a good life and be dead. Oh, that stinks. And we threw out all these answers, and he had a lot of fun with us. He asked great questions. And he's the first guy I ever heard use that line, you know, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be any evidence to convict you? I was like, wow, that's deep for sixth grade. <laughs> I was like, I don't have to think about that one. That's good. But he started pondering these questions and he turned around and he said, if you're not betting your entire life that Jesus was real, you're playing. Because he said, if when I say to you, if there's no God, if you're not horrified at how committed you were to a lie, then there's more for you to grow into. I was like, oh, it's good. I remember being a kid going, that's legit. I think about Don a lot. He passed away from cancer. In fact, the night I was ordained, he died that morning. And I would love for him to have been there. But I'm like, he's hanging with the boss. Eh? He's good. He's probably like, oh, yeah, yeah, you had that thing? That was neat, Mark. <laughs> I'm here. But I just remember him always asking me that question. If, if the fact that there may not be a God doesn't devastate your entire life, you're just playing. It's eh, a good word, huh? Let's pray and then we'll go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you're not, the, the point of the persecuted church is, if you're not praying for their courage, um, I had a group of junior high uh, guys ask me what they could read. I said, read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of Daniel. You want to talk about Daniel knelt when everybody stood, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood when everybody kneeled. And we don't know what position God's going to put us in, but it's going to be contrary to the world. And if you're not praying, and I don't want to guilt you with this, this is not myth or fairy tale. There are people that are deciding right this moment whether they live or die based on whether or not they believe Jesus Christ is real. And that is our family. That is the church. And we may say, well, no, it's those people in Egypt. No, 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 no. Egypt protected our nation. I mean, I don't mean America. Egypt was an incubator for the people of faith to grow to a point that God could call them to the promised land. There is a connection all over the world with this. So these aren't myths. and story. People are giving their lives up for the kingdom. And what I love is the book of Revelation says they are at the foot of the throne of God crying out to God how much longer. They're praying for us. So it's a good word. We'll pray for them too. God, thank you for our hope. 
And we get in our cars and we grab our kids and we go home and we have food and we pray we have furnaces and beds and jobs and family and love and encouragement, even if our life was hard today. God, we know your care and your provision. It's too much. I pray that we'll never forget where we came from and that these we eat from trees we didn't plant. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of a generation that is carrying us. But God, right now, as has been pointed out, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are having to make horrendous choices, who have to stand up with courage and put their life on the line that you're real and that they believe that you have this covered. I pray for those that survive, for the wives and children and husbands who watch their loved ones taken from them and tortured. God, it's sick. It's wrong. It's evil. It's darkness. And when the world continues to call darkness good, God, I just pray protection. I, I want to pray that this never happens. But you, you're working through it. You, you, the great persecution in the book of Acts caused the church to go into all the world. And I pray that you'll get what you want from this. I pray that the evil will be stopped. I pray that there will be Pauls in the audience that see Stephen stoned and convert. I pray that they'll see the courage and testimony and it'll change their path because you love them too. So God, we, we come before you tonight just asking as we end our day here and uh, we spend moments thinking and praying and, and saying goodnight to one another as we head toward our homes, God, that we would do it with a gratitude and a commitment to these, these people of our, our church throughout the world, uh, that they might stand for you and profess by faith who you are and that you might work through that to change this world back to light. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.